Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and this is the part two that you have been waiting for. To mark the 200th anniversary of Napoleon Bonaparte's death, we have the brilliant Zach White. And he takes us through what happens as Napoleon starts to fall from grace. His first exile, then his second exile after his defeat at Waterloo, and his ultimate death in abject poverty on the island of St. Helena. So here he is, the brilliant Zach White on the death of Napoleon. Okay, enough of his victories. I think we can start to get to the point where we see him descend. So tell us a little about his defeats. I think it's probably fair to say that Horatio Nelson becomes a bit of a a nemesis of his. Napoleon kind of guides himself away from great naval battles, mainly because of the destruction of the French Navy, and is more of an astute ground commander. Do you think that's fair? I suppose that's fair given his artillery and military background, right? Yeah, I'm not sure if Nelson specifically was somebody that Napoleon singled out as a great nemesis. Certainly Nelson was by no means the only one who presided over some crushing victories for the British Navy. And there's a long tradition of British success over the course of this conflict. So Glorious First of June, for example. So there are a few of them there. But certainly it's very clear that I think somebody describes this as is it the lion versus the whale. This sort of great struggle where neither one can get at the other. Britain knows for well, because there's a very small army at this point. There's no conscription in the British army very small fighting force, really designed for defence of the home islands, defence of the colonies, a few colonial operations. But the whole idea of British strategy at this point in time is if there's a war, we go and take the Sugar Islands in the West Indies and we use them as a bargaining chip in future negotiations. That's how Britain initially approaches the French Revolution and Napoleonic Wars. Now that quite obviously changes when it becomes very clear that the French are dominant in Europe And therefore, Britain struggled in the sense that they didn't have the force to be able to strike effectively at Napoleon. You do see attempts at expeditions, but they quite often go very badly wrong. So for Napoleon, it's a problem that he can't quell Britain because Britain is the linchpin of every single one of the coalitions that are formed against him. 
Apart from a very small period of time during the Peace of Amiens between 1801 and 1803, Britain is constantly at war with France from 1792 to 1815. So Napoleon is able to assert his dominance on the European mainland because of the power of the French army, which he has a key role in training. But at the same time, he can't invade Britain because of British naval dominance. Now, that's not to say that Trafalgar is the be-all and end-all of that, because actually Napoleon had given up on the idea of invading Britain long before the Battle of Trafalgar. So he's already moving men to fight what will become the Austerlitz campaign that leads to the Battle of Austerlitz, that great crushing victory of the Austrians and the Prussians. In terms of his downfall, though, there are many great examples of Napoleonic battles. Austerlitz, the ultimate example of throwing the dummy. You've got Friedland, where he's pinning the enemy with their back to the river and gradually bringing in reinforcements to then crush them when they've got nowhere to go. You've got Wagram's kind of that great slogging match, but again, an example of his ability to mass artillery, to bombard, to pin his enemy down, to fend off the counterattacks by pushing in the reinforcements that arrive piecemeal and reorganize the line, hold, and then pin again, and then finally break through. And there's no taking away the scale of his success. At no point will I say that Napoleon was not an exceptional military commander. He's probably the greatest captain of his day. The only person who can rival him for that crown is the Duke of Wellington. And there's a whole argument about who deserves dominance over that. Why does Napoleon fall from power, though? Well, for me, part of the issue is actually in his diplomacy. I don't consider Napoleon to have been one of the great diplomats. He had an ability, but ultimately, the reason that the empire falls is because it's impossible to establish a lasting peace. And my argument would be that it's a lack of compromise that sees that failure for a lasting peace settlement to materialise. In 1807, he famously concludes the Treaty of Tilsit, with the Russians, secures an alliance with the Russians, and it seems like he's going to be the great dominant power in Europe for the foreseeable future. But the issue with Napoleon is that at any one of the starts of the various wars of coalition, and there are seven across the period, 1789 to 1815, you can argue that Napoleon was attacked and that the Allies moved first. And they, in many cases, they absolutely did. But you've got to think about why do the coalition powers move first? And it's quite often because they're looking at the balance of power they're looking at the French hegemony and they're going, we just can't let this lie. We've got French dominance over the entirety of the continent, in effect. This can't be allowed to stand. And from 1807, Napoleon makes what is effectively his last ditch attempt to bring the British to the negotiating table by starving them into submission. So he institutes something called the continental system. He's effectively dictating the economic policy of the entire continent. He demands that every nation in Europe close its borders to British commerce so that that will then bankrupt the country and force them to consider peace terms on Napoleon's terms as opposed to the terms that the British might be inclined to put forward. And then it starts to fall apart a little bit because he starts to turn his attention to the Iberian Peninsula, Spain and Portugal. Portugal, a long-standing ally of Britain, is told you will close your borders to British commerce or you will be invaded. And this is an independent nation, perfectly capable of forming its own foreign policy and forming its own decisions. Eventually, they agree, which is very problematic for the Portuguese government because they don't want to break ties 
with Britain, but they agree to all of these terms that are dictated and they're invaded regardless. So Portugal has been occupied by the end of 1807. In the process of that, Napoleon had been sort of pumping reinforcements ostensibly for the army that goes into Portugal through Spain, who was his ally. But then in 1808, he makes a fatal decision. And that decision is to replace the Spanish monarchy with his own brother. He looks at dissent that is going on and arguments within the Spanish royal family and decides that actually it'd be much better if he installed, in effect, a puppet ruler in Spain. Lots of reasons for that, partly perhaps to acquire the Spanish navy. Some talk about perhaps there's a plan to then start a descent into North Africa and conquer the whole of the North African coast. Nobody's got a definitive answer on quite what the plan was. But quite unsurprisingly, the Spanish population rise up in revolt and you see something called the Peninsula War. It lasts a heck of a long time, so from 1808 to 1814. But quite crucially, Britain is able to send a force that actually they were about to send to take Spanish colonies in South America. It's redirected under the command of Sir Arthur Wellesley, who, of course, many of our listeners will know, goes on to become the Duke of Wellington. And it's that force that suffers many setbacks. The war ebbs and flows because you've got a quarter of a million men tied down in Spain, trying to evict the British, but also trying to keep the local population under control. But it means that Napoleon isn't winning the war in Spain. He's tying down a huge number of men, which he could put to better use elsewhere. And then the continental system again comes into play in 1811 to 1812, because Russia withdraws from the continental system. There are a number of other tensions, but eventually in 1812, Napoleon famously goes in with his disastrous invasion of Russia, sending in the Grand Armée, half a million men, one of the largest armies ever assembled up until that point in history. And folks will know the campaign goes disastrously wrong. Wow. I mean, first of all, Zach, that is a fascinating tour de force of the history of Napoleon during that period. So thank you so much for that. And you're not wrong, are you? I mean, diplomacy 101. Do not overthrow your allies and do not break your promises time and time again because no one else is going to trust you. And by the sounds of it, that's exactly what happens with the Russian Tsar. He continues to go and to trade with Britain as a means to continue making money and I'm sure to try and hedge your bets a little bit. And it's at this point, like you say, that Napoleon doesn't like the way in which the Russians are behaving and so tries to move on and move through to the gates of Moscow and makes the so many mistakes that he did. Is it at this point then that we can say that Napoleon's fate is sealed? Personally, I don't think so, because the war fairly obviously goes on until 1814, at which point you have the first abdication, he's exiled to Elba, and, and then he comes back for the Waterloo campaign, which no doubt we'll get to. But in 1813, he achieves an incredible feat. So he gets out with 50,000 men. Now, bear in mind, half a million men went in. So that's 90% casualty rates between killed, wounded, taken prisoner. And in the process, that kind of breaks the back of French military might. But he is able to raise a new army. Once the army crosses the Berezina River, he very rapidly moves to Paris, starts a process of rebuilding a new force, and then is able to take that force into Germany and fights the Battle of the Nations on the 16th to 19th of October, 1813. Half a million men in total between both sides of the coalition. It was the largest battle that was fought up until the First World War. And the casualties from that, it was another brutal slogging match. 52,000 Allied casualties, 
47,000 killed and wounded on the French side, another 35,000 taken prisoner. And in the process for all that Napoleon does his level best to hold the line, he can't hold off the massing forces. There's just too much pressure, too many men piling in, and it's an impossible task. He comes close to victory at one point, actually, on the first day, but isn't able to achieve that breakthrough that he would have needed. Now, what's quite crucial in terms of whether or not this was an inevitability in terms of the end of Napoleon's reign is that he's offered peace terms. The Frankfurt proposals are made in November 1813. Further proposals are actually made in early 1814. Both were points when Napoleon could have said, yes, okay, because part of those proposals were that he would remain as monarch of France. So there was a willingness from the Allies to accept Napoleon as a leader. Now, those in the pro-Napoleon camp might turn around and say, yes, but this was a way of playing for time. There was no credibility in the idea that they would have accepted Napoleon. They had a vendetta against Napoleon. I'm not sure that they did, not in 1813 and 1814. I think there was a genuine willingness to come to a peaceful settlement rather than prolong the war. Now, Napoleon turns them down, partly because there is a debate about to what extent is this about his coronation oath, in that he agrees to maintain and defend France's borders as they are in 1804. And the Frankfurt proposals would have led to an erosion of that. So some would argue, well, he can't be true to his coronation oath and accept those proposals. But there's also an element about Napoleon and his character here. Napoleon is good at war. He's incredibly good at war. And so if he thinks he's got a chance of a better peace settlement dictated by him rather than the Allies, he's going to take it because he knows he has the ability given the right circumstances, to win. And we see that in the 1814 campaign. The 1814 campaign is just this incredible campaign where he has a much smaller force, and that's why ultimately he's not able to win, where he's able to strike, pivot, strike again. The same kind of campaign that really we saw right back at the start of his career in Italy in the 1790s, which shows that even at the end of his time as a commander, he had all of the skills still. Okay, Zach, you've mentioned it, so take us through. How do we rise up to the Battle of Waterloo? Waterloo, for me, is one of the great futile battles of history. So in 1814, Napoleon, having fought on, agrees to his abdication. There's something described as effectively a, a mutiny amongst his marshals where they say, we can't keep fighting. He accepts the reality and abdicates, hoping that, in effect, his son will be placed as successor and installed as the new emperor. That's not what happens. The Bourbon monarchy is restored and Napoleon is exiled to the island of Elba in the Mediterranean. So not very far off. He's given a guard of a thousand men. He's meant to be given a pension. In reality, he doesn't receive the subsidies that he's meant to receive from the French government. And that is often used as an explanation for why he decides to return. For me, and people are more than welcome to dismiss this as somebody who's just a sceptic and a cynic, I think that this is Napoleon the Machiavellian again, because he observes what's happening politically between the coalition powers. And with Napoleon gone, their unifying reason has gone with him. And so in the process, they start squabbling amongst themselves. And this is very real prospect of a war breaking out between the former coalition allies in 1814 to 15. Now, Napoleon sees this and sees an ideal opportunity and in 1815, he's able to evade his jailers. I think the jailer actually is off visiting his mistress 
at the time, which is quite awkward for him. He has a very, very small navy, a couple of very small boats that he is able to paint in, in such a way to disguise their identity. He invades the Royal Navy, which is meant to be bottling him up in Elba to make sure that he can't escape. It's just a cataloguer of failings. And he lands on the south coast of France with a thousand men, not exactly an imposing force. It seems like quite a mad move on his part. But I think Napoleon knew his men well enough because he knew what he represented in terms of a return to the glory days. And what you see in 1815, Charles Esdale has actually described as a military coup in all but name, not because Napoleon marches in with an army and physically ejects the Bourbon monarchy, but because the army defects almost piecemeal to Napoleon. Marshal Ney, who Napoleon himself described after the Moscow campaign as the bravest of the brave, vows that he will bring Napoleon back to French King Louis in an iron cage. It's one of those sort of head-in-your-hand moments in history because Ney was absolutely devoted to Napoleon. And so the idea of sending off Ney in command of an army to arrest Napoleon, you just sort of scratch your head and think, this really wasn't the greatest move that you could think of. Unsurprisingly, it doesn't happen. Ney defects to Napoleon. And Napoleon then tries to position himself as a man of peace. You see a very different constitution brought in in 1815. To his credit, slavery is then abolished, having reinstituted it, particularly in Saint-Domingue, earlier in his first reign. But Napoleon is, as I said before, the thing that unified the coalition powers. So when he returns to power, having toppled the French monarchy, for all that he might have claimed that he found the crown of France lying in the gutter and picked it up himself, and that he doesn't want war, the Allies aren't buying it. In fact, Napoleon was quite right. He didn't want war. But there's a very simple reason for that. He wasn't ready. There was no sense in fighting a war straight away because he needed the time to reorganise his armies, to resupply the men, to train them up, to institute the conscription. And the Allies... They declare war actually on Napoleon himself rather than on France, which is a very important distinction. This is where you could perhaps argue it's a personal vendetta, but actually you've got what, as far as the Allies are concerned, is a perfectly legitimate French monarch, Louis, who has taken refuge in Belgium. So they don't want to declare war on France because as far as they're concerned, they support the French monarch. They dislike the usurper and they don't buy this idea that Napoleon is just going to contentedly sit in France and rule France, and that's going to be an end of it. They universally agree, because they're all actually, at the time that he makes his move, they're all meeting in Vienna. So it's quite bad timing for him in that sense. So they're all kind of sitting around a table, able to instantly agree the terms for what becomes the final war of coalition, the seventh coalition. And the idea then is that they will move Russian and Austrian troops across Germany, and they will wait until everything's in position, and then as one huge crushing force advance into France and topple Napoleon for good this time. Now, Napoleon reads the situation incredibly well as is his way and knows that the only way out of this is to start to divide and rule the different coalition powers, which means he needs a quick victory. And that's why he launches that invasion into Belgium in June of 1815. He's striking at the two nearest forces, if you will. So a force under the Duke of Wellington, which isn't an entirely British army, as people often like to pretend. It's an Anglo-Dutch force with Belgian contingent in there as well, and also some Germans in the forms of Brunswickers, and a Prussian force under Marshal Blücher. 
it's an incredible move in terms of what he's trying to do in that Napoleon always had a knack for identifying the weak points in an enemy's deployment. And he effectively tries to treat the two allied armies as two doors. And if he rams his foot in the gap between the doors, he can force them to swing apart so they can't support each other. And then he can defeat each one in turn because he knows that if they combine against him, that's it. Game over. And that's ultimately the story of the Waterloo campaign. The Allies trying to achieve that strategy of fighting together. That was always the strategy. Even the twin battles of Catra and Ligny, where the Anglo-Dutch force and the Prussian force are fighting separate engagements against French forces. The idea, Wellington's plan, is to hold the French, if he can, at Catra and move reinforcements to support Blücher at Ligny. That doesn't work. But then you see the reverse happening at Waterloo, where Wellington holds the line, buying enough time for the Prussians to arrive and then crush the force. And that, in effect, is the end game. Napoleon isn't able to rally. He accepts the inevitability of his defeat, resigns again, hoping that his son will be instituted as the ruler. That isn't the case. And he's exiled to St. Helena, tries to throw himself on the mercy of the British government, writes a very kind of ingratiating letter to the Prince Regent, saying, you've always been the greatest of my adversaries. I have great respect. Please install me as a prisoner in Britain. The British won't let him land. They do not allow Napoleon to set foot in the British Isles because they fear the revolutionary fervour that that would stir up. He's sent to St Helena in the South Atlantic, where he ultimately dies a few years later. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of those great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, before we go through to his death, am I right in thinking that he was kept as a prisoner on a ship in the Plymouth Sound and became a bit of a tourist attraction? He absolutely did. In fact, some people end up dying because people are so keen to see Napoleon. So yeah, he's taken aboard HMS Bellerophon, which, as you say, sails to Plymouth. They then send letters announcing that they have Napoleon on board. What are we meant to do with him? And as I say, Napoleon isn't allowed onto dry land, so nobody's able to physically see him. So the local fishermen and ferrymen absolutely capitalise on this opportunity. And there are hundreds of boats that end up swarming around the Bellerophon with tourists who want to try and get a glimpse of this great Corsican ogre, as he's been described in British propaganda. He is. He's shown as a bit of a devil in the press, isn't he? I mean, we talk about Napoleon as being great at showing his image and his victories and his own PR. But when it comes to the British, their way of presenting Napoleon, of course, not only the fact later on that he is short, He's not short for his time, is he? What is he, 5'7 or something? So average height? 5'6, exactly average height for his time. Yep, so not short, but demonised, and quite literally demonised, presented in the press as a bit of a demon, right? Yeah, absolutely. So people might be familiar with the great caricatures by James Gilray, for example. Gilray was an absolute genius in how he put his caricatures together. And obviously with such a visceral image, such vibrant images that could be shared and understood much more easily. Yes, as you say, the British propaganda machine, which was highly sophisticated, even though there was to an extent a free press, not exclusively a free press, but to an extent, it therefore meant that that perception of Napoleon as a tyrant, as an ogre, as a usurper, could be pushed incredibly effectively. And you've got to bear in mind that by 1815, a lot of people would have known nothing but war because Britain had been at war with France from 1792. From 1799, it's Napoleon who is the leader of France. So for a number of people, all they've known in their life is this war with Napoleon. And so that perception has very deep roots of Napoleon as the ogre. And so people want to see this guy. Very few people actually succeed. Napoleon spends a lot of his time in his cabin, but in the process of all of these boats milling around, a couple actually end up sinking. So it ends up being quite a lethal business. But then he is, he's taken off on ship and off to the island of St. Helena. Now, this is a little bit further away, isn't it? This is in the South Atlantic. Yeah, I think it's about 1,300 miles from the nearest piece of African mainland. It's literally in the middle of nowhere. Some historians make the analogy with Prometheus, you know, kind of chained to the rock, unable to escape. And this is a far, far stricter imprisonment because in Elba, he's granted the right to rule Elba. In St. Helena, he is quite literally a prisoner and he's treated as such. And he has quite a hard time of things on St. Helena. The last episode of his life is kind of a sad one for somebody who had achieved such heights of glory. And certainly his death, I think it's very difficult not to feel at least some degree of pity for Napoleon's death 
So he's actually based in two places on St Helena. For the first two months, he's at the Briars Estate, which is the summer residence of an East India Company merchant. He's then moved to Longwood House. The Briars Estate, quite a nice place, but the Longwood House, very small, well, small by the standards that the pony's used to. It's about the size of a two up, two down by UK standards. Very sparsely furnished and also very damp. The climate was not particularly pleasant on St Helena. That was something that had an impact on his health. He suffered from poor health for a lot of the last few years of his life. And there was some debate about what exactly had caused Napoleon's death. Was it actually the climate? Had the British, in effect, killed off Napoleon by putting him in such an inhospitable place as a prison? And so the autopsy became very important after he'd died in May 1821, because if he'd died from hepatitis, then it could have been claimed that the island had been the thing that killed him. And his last days were very feverish, so it was perhaps possible that he'd died from some kind of fever caused by the climate. In reality, it wasn't hepatitis that killed him. He died from acute stomach cancer. Well, he had acute stomach cancer. There's actually some discussion about, was it a gastric tear caused by the tumour that had caused his ultimate death? He'd been suffering from frequent vomiting and stomach pains. He'd then developed abdominal pains and fever on top of the stomach pains. And he took to his bed for his last 40 days. He knew he was dying. There was no doubt about that. He made plans, actually, for celebrations of his death, religious celebrations. Now, there's a common myth that he was poisoned. This is based on the idea that a lock of his hair that was cut off after his death was tested and traces of arsenic were found. In reality, it's really not a credible theory. Um, there is talk about how the lead paint that was used to decorate the house perhaps had arsenic in it, and that was what contributed. Two people were present for the autopsy. Both concluded that it was the cancer in one way or another that killed him. More recently, the whole evidence from the autopsies has been reviewed, and the conclusion was that actually it was a massive gastric hemorrhage. But either way, it was a very painful, very slow very unpleasant way to go. He was buried initially on St Helena, not taken back to Paris, where he is now, but he was moved to that spectacular tomb in Léonvalide, in the centre of Paris, which if anybody's got spare time in Paris, go and see the tomb, just for its sheer awe that it inflicts. I don't think he would have been disappointed. And the rest, as they say, is history, but the debate rages on, because his legacy, the arguments about was he evil or was he a hero, just will never go away. Quite a miserable end for a great military leader, dead at 51. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So not old. Quite young. Yeah. I mean, Wellington lives on until 1852. He's 90, 91, something like that. So yeah, he died early. And ultimately, whichever way you look at it, the cancer was going to kill him. He wasn't in great health, actually, by the time of the Waterloo campaign. For all the 1814 campaign was spectacular. There was something very different about Napoleon in 1815, whether it was psychology, whether it was sheer exhaustion, or whether it was the startings of the cancer taking effect. But he didn't waste his time on St Helena because he used it to, I would say, get his historical retaliation in first. He, in effect, dictates memoirs to Las Casas, which is Napoleon's opportunity to start apportioning blame and kind of rewriting elements of history, deciding who was at fault. And it's quite clear that very often it's not Napoleon who's at fault at any point, but that's probably a reflection of narcissism on his part. And it's that, of course, 
that enables the foundations of what becomes the Napoleonic cult. Those folks who take Napoleon at his word, see what he considered to be his achievements, take that at face value and aren't hugely interested in the negatives because they consider that to be a rewriting of history and kind of inserting modern agendas on our historical interpretation. Well, there you go. That is the power of history. Now, Zach, like I said, this is the 200th anniversary of his death. He died on May 5th. So where can people learn more about this? I know you're really involved in this. Are there events that people can go to? What do we need to know? Absolutely. Well, as you can imagine, there's a great deal going on in France. Ironically, is perhaps the place where less is going on. But that's to do with how people remember Napoleon in France, which is not necessarily always that favourable. So there's a British Napoleon Bicentenary group, which folks can find on Twitter, that have been organising a number of events, lectures, debates, some fantastic content being put out by them. So they're well worth a look. If people want to read up, it depends really on which side of the argument you really want to side with. So if you're pro-Napoleon, you are likely to enjoy Andrew Roberts's Napoleon the Great. If you're anti-Napoleon, then the works of Charles Esdale and Philip Dwyer are much more likely to appeal. Adam Zamoyski is someone who's somewhere in the middle. And if you just want to watch something, if you just typed Andrew Roberts, Adam Zamoyski into YouTube, you'd find a great debate between the two of them. They get on very well and they have good fun debating this issue on a few occasions, actually. For my part, if folks are interested in reading up a little bit more about the Napoleonic era, I run a website, www.thenapoleonicwars.net, which has a forum attached to it. So if folks have got questions, they can post in there. It's quite lively at times in terms of the pro and anti-Napoleon camps, kind of slogging it out with one another. But we keep it polite and civil, or at least as civil as is humanly possible with such a divisive figure. As you said at the start, I also run a podcast, The Napoleonicist, which folks are able to listen to. No competitor to history hit warfare, of course, that goes without saying. But yeah, folks are very welcome to search for that, available on all podcast platforms. And yeah, I, I have a book coming out, actually, which folks might be quite interested in, in terms of understanding Napoleon's character and other characters during this period. It's called The Sword and the Spirit, and it's actually an edited collection, so it's not all been written by me. And it's got a chapter in there written by Ed Koss, who's done a very careful study with army psychologists about Napoleon's mental state. Now, they're very, very respectful of the fact that you can't be definitive in diagnosing mental health disorders when you don't have the patient in the room. They factor that into their analysis, but their conclusions are incredible. So well worth having a look at that. We've also got chapters on controversial moments on the British side, because at no point will I pretend that the British were perfect. So there's a great chapter written by Gavin Lewis on the Siege of San Sebastian, which is plundered by the British. You've got all kinds of other chapters looking at other aspects from individuals to local relations. And that's available at hellion.co.uk for pre-order and is coming out in a couple of months. Well, amazing. There you go. From podcasts and debates on the website through to books, anything Napoleon and the Napoleonic era, head to Zach White. Zach, thank you so much for coming on the Warfare Podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Mom. 
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.